0: Hi, and welcome to Voices of Esalen, I'm Sam Stern. Today, my guest is longtime friend of Esalen, Ken Dykewald. Ken is an amazing guy, amazing storyteller, and besides being the best-selling author of more than 10 books, he's a gerontologist, a psychologist, an educator, a professional lecturer, and I mean, one of the best to ever pick up a microphone, a consultant to several White House administrations, and besides all that, He knows a lot about Esalen back in the day. So I got into the 70s with him, and we dug into quite a bit, including the work of Will Schutz, The Encounter Groups, Psychodrama, Gestalt Therapy. Ken and I also talked about his seminal book, Body Mind, which he developed in his early 20s, and how he came to be at the forefront of the holistic health movement at its inception. We also spoke about his current work with aging populations, as well as a bold initiative with the XPRIZE Foundation that aims to defeat Alzheimer's. So sit back, relax, and tune in to Ken Dychtwald. Can you take me down a path that would kind of explain to people how you began your lifelong uh, involvement with the Esalen Institute? Sure. So. Um, <clears throat> I was born in 1950.
1: Uh, Middle class, maybe lower middle class, trying to be middle class uh, family in Newark, New Jersey. Uh, My dad was a hardworking guy, as was my mom.
0: What was Newark like in those Uh, days?
1: Newark was, uh, I loved it. I didn't realize until I got out that it was a rough edged rumble town, you know? Uh, You know, we played ball in the streets and we're always out with our friends and There was a complicated, racial, diverse dance going on. My first day of high school, my high school was 90% white. My last day of high school, my high school was 90% black. Wow. So it was a time of massive transition uh, in Newark. Which not being very worldly, I just thought that's kind of, that's life, you know, that's the way it is. And, you know, I I, I, I think I had a pretty wonderful upbringing. I was captain in a math team and I also played a lot of basketball. I was captain in the tennis team. I was undefeated. So I was sort of a scholar athlete kind of, mm-hmm. but I would say with reasonably modest dreams. Um, my intent was to become an electrical engineer or a physicist mm-hmm. and probably live in a house Within a few minutes of where my mom and dad, mom and dad lived. Why electrical
0: engineer, physicist?
1: Uh, because when I was in high school, I went to uh, one of these vocational testing places, and they told me that I had strong aptitudes for the sciences and that I should be an electrical engineer. And not having any clue as to who I actually was or what the world actually had to offer, I figured, okay, then that's what I'll be. So I went to a little engineering school in uh, in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, Lehigh University. And I partly went because they accepted me early notice and it was good school and I could be home in an hour. And it was only about an hour drive from my folks. I don't, neither of my folks have been to college. So I didn't have a whole lot of like today's modern age, you know, kids having like college coaches and applying to 180 schools. I just figured I'm going to go to college and get a degree and, and have a hopefully a good life. And then um, in my junior year, I had to take uh, some electives So I was asked to take a psychology course to round out my engineering and physics training. And uh, I wandered into a psychology course. I I didn't really know what psychology was. This would have been like 1969. And the professor had just recently graduated from Stanford. So he'd been living in California Bay Area, which was kind of the time in Bay Area, Palo Alto, of Merry Pranksters, Ken Kesey. Jerry Garcia, that kind of an Eslin. And this guy was pretty cool. And the course was the psychology of human potential. And I absolutely remember that the very first psychology textbook I ever had and read was The Varieties of the Psychedelic Experience by Masters in Houston. And then second was Consciousness, East and West by Alan Watson. Third was Toward a Psychology of Being by Abraham Maslow. And then fourth was a book called Joy by William Schutz that had just been written, I think, in 1967. In any case, the idea of this course was that human beings had extraordinary capabilities, vast potentials. And then we were only maybe untapping two three five percent of it, and it just blew my mind and I had never had my mind blown up until then i mean i you know I wasn't my world, and I thought. Wow, this is sort of amazing. And then, as I dig deeper, I learned that there were ancient therapies and Tai Chi, yoga, things that perhaps could unleash these potentials. And that this was a moment in time, and there were new things arriving: bioenergetics, Rolfing, Feldenkrais, um, encounter, Gestalt, that were designed to sort of open up the restrictions and let people be liberated and and live a kind of a bigger, grander version of their possibilities. And so I was just taken by all this. And in all these books back then, there'd be a mention in the biography, Alan Watts, blah, 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 is a teacher at the Esalen Institute. William Schutz left Harvard to be a teacher at the Esalen Institute. And so I dropped out. There was nothing in my life up until that point that would indicate that that was something I would ever do, uh, honestly. And so I was 20 and I just dropped out of college, which my mom and dad had couldn't conceive. I, and I was going to Esalen and what I had learned, I had never been to therapy and I'd never taken a workshop. So I thought Esalen was sort of like college. So I sold everything I had and borrowed a lot of money and cut into some of my bar mitzvah money. And, um, (laughs) and I signed up for six months of workshops, Friday to Sunday, Sunday to Friday, Friday to Sunday, Sunday to Friday, Friday to Sunday, Sunday to Friday, Friday to Sunday. For six
0: months. How did you get out to, how did you get out to Big Sur?
1: Well, I flew. I got off the plane. I had my backpack and I had my semi-growing hair and uh, I had a guitar and I went out on Highway 101 and put up my finger, my thumb to hitchhike into San Francisco and I got arrested. And because they thought I was a homeless runaway. And uh, apparently you were not allowed to hitchhike on Highway 101 at that moment in time. By the way, I would also tell you that that was a time of hitchhiking. So you'd get around the country or get back and forth to Esalen or Big Sur or San Francisco or L.A. You'd hitchhike. And by the way, you know, you'd be out on the road. There'd be hundreds of other people hitchhiking. It was kind of like a, a scene, you know. It was like a, you'd make friends. You weren't worried that there was like a killer in the car. So... I wound up uh, getting released, I didn't serve any time, they called my parents, and I just left that morning, so my parents were like, we're getting a call from the police, what's wrong here? And then I, uh, Esalen had a van that would pick you up in the city, and I came down to Esalen and took my first workshop. I remember it, and it's, it, it will partly date me, it was called Body Mind which was a name I ultimately grabbed and got permission to use for the title of my first book, which I read a few years later. It was held in the room that is now called Rolf Meeting Room. It was called FIRO then. And um, it was, the workshop was being led by William Schutz, who in many ways was a big gravitational attraction to Esselen because he'd been on the Johnny Carson show many times. Wow. Will had a, he did what was called a micro lab. So we, we were, he asked us to all get up and walk around the room. Now I was 20. And uh, most of the people at Esalen, there was no work scholar program, there was none of that. So the people in the workshop were like 35, 50, 70, and the guys all had like mutton chop sideburns and bell-bottoms, and I don't know, maybe Birkenstocks were in by then, but it was like pretending to be hippie looking. And Will had us all go around touching people. I'm like, what's that about, you know? And so 15 minutes into that, Uh, He said, okay, now everybody, I want you to go outside the door and remove all your clothes and then come back in the room and find the person to whom you're least attracted and sit in front of them and tell them why. That was my first 30 minutes in a workshop. Wow. The idea of it now seems bizarre. Maybe it was bizarre then too, but I think the idea of it, there was I learned over the next six months that there was a belief in this emerging world of psychology meets emotions, meets the body, that there could be what's called an abreaction. A-B-R-E-A-C-T-A-I-O-N. The idea that we hold trauma, we hold fears, we hold, we are fake. We put on facades, fake faces, fake clothes. Let's get naked so there's nothing hidden. And by the way, I would tell you that it was the first time I'd ever, other than being in like in the locker room for my basketball team, and if I had a girlfriend, you know, I'd never really seen naked people. And that's jolting all by itself because people are not nearly as good looking naked as like in, you know, as you think they're going to be. I've never been around old people who are naked. And I think the idea was to take people to a point of profound discomfort. Because if you can get to that discomfort, then maybe we can get to what you're really hurting. Maybe we can get to what you're really frightened about. Maybe you can talk about the things that are deep. Now, I don't know that that model of psychology is right. But I think that's what was going on. And the whole rest of that group, which is sort of like an encounter group, um, was about getting people to get through the horrors of their life, the fears of their life, and feel the feeling of, of having those trauma or those emotions shed. Yeah. I think the theory was that if you can be free of those, you can feel a deeper, richer version of yourself. And you can be seen. And see others. In any case, I was 20. It was 1970. You asked me how I got there. So I moved from Newark to Big Sur.
0: Did you feel kind of at sea at all? Was there, was there a feeling like I'm the only 20-year-old East Coast kid here amongst a, a, a vastly different group of people? Or were you more sort of like, I found my tribe? Let me try, because I left and then came
1: back. So I'd say the first time I was there, I felt like I had read Huxley's book, Island, which was sort of a science fiction-y fantasy type book about a guy that lands on this island where everybody is sort of conscious and open and different. And it's like being, I'd always been a science fiction maniac. So I felt like I was in in a supernatural world. And, you know, with all due respect, I'm now 68, i would never been to a place as remarkable, the property, the people, the mood, the attitude of Esalen. And I felt that as soon as I came down the driveway, I was like, what, where am I? And so everything about it was otherworldly for me. And I was willing to play along or to go along with the groups because I thought I'm like a student and these are the teachers and this is what we're supposed to do, so we do it. And then, you know, the next week it was about sensory uh, awakening. It was a guy named Bernard Gunther who had uh, been a student of Charlotte Selver and Charles Brooks. And that group was really simple. We would hold a stone in our hand for like a half a day, or you'd smell a flower, or you'd have somebody, you know, let some water, you know, bathe your feet. And the idea of that was in a post-World War II, highly uptight world, let's feel again nothing abusive, nothing sexual, but it was let's feel again. And I, and I I thought, wow, this is sort of, and one workshop, like a symphony led to the next. I felt like a stranger in a strange land. I didn't yet feel that Esalen was my tribe, although I have a deep feeling about that now, which we'll get to probably in a few minutes. And I know this sounds kind of corny but forget about the naked workshop or the will shoots thing there was very much the feeling the idea that humanity was at the brink of an extraordinary evolutionary jump that, that we were going to see kinder people. We were going to have more rich relationships. We were going to understand our bodies in a way that would help us be healthy and vibrant and orgasmic and beaming, and that we would see people less superficially but more deeply, and that from all of that would come... Uh, a new psychology, a new medicine, maybe even a new humanity. It was a hopeful time. And it was a time of cross-fertilization. And it was a time, I I mean, I remember, frankly, other than the workshops, I remember sitting in the baths as a kid. You know, I was just a kid. And, you know, there would be Sam Keen in a really intense discussion with Hector Prestera, who was a physician, dropped out to become an acupuncturist rolfer, And sitting next to them would be John Lilly who had just done all his research on, you know, dolphins and, and their brains. And I would sit there like 11 o'clock at night and I would just sit there and listen to them have these discussions till the sun rose. And I thought, man, this is what it must have been like in Paris when the great artists were coming together. Or maybe this is that there are moments in time when people come together to think and talk and share and dream and ideate and And I thought that I was the luckiest guy in the world because I had somehow gotten there. So I was there for six months. And while I was there, many of the workshops were done nude. And I was there repeatedly. So I was watching people. And I and I was noticing how people cried and how they heaved and how the shoulders moved and how the the chest lifted and fell and how that affected the diaphragm and and then I be in workshop and work and I began to notice patterns about the body and mind, which probably would not have been noticeable if people would have been in a therapy session for 50 minutes with a suit and tie on. Mm-hmm. So I got to see the way people were shaped and how they breathed and how they moved and how they flowed and where they were tight and where they hurt. And, um, so during those six months, I began to imagine a psychology of the body,
0: which wasn't, it didn't really exist then. At this time, would, 1970 or so had Fritz uh, Pearls left Esalen? I arrived in September. Fritz died uh, that summer right before.
1: But I would tell you that every Tuesday night in the lodge, every Tuesday night, we would all sit and there'd be a Fritz film. And it was, you'd see Fritz, you know, chain-smoking and, and doing gestalt work with people. And everybody in the, on the property tried to look like Fritz and act like Fritz and, you know, kind of do therapy like Fritz. So I never met him, um, but he was very much alive his, and there were Fritz second generation, you know, Dick Price was a master. Um, a guy named Jim Simpkin was a master. I mean, there were other people who could do this gestalt work. And 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 I would say it was done in more dynamic forms also because uh, the way the hot seat has evolved now is people think of it as a person and, you know, work in the hot seat. But back then there was this sort of Cirque du Soleil dimension where you might have seven people working on a thing simultaneously. Mm-hmm. A lot of psychodrama. Big influence influ- of Ariel Moreno and psychodrama.
0: Would you mind explaining what psychodrama is just in case there's uh, listeners who are not familiar with the term?
1: Yeah, I actually felt that psychodrama had more of an impact on the Esselin style than Gestalt. Uh, So I'm in sort of a minority group I know there. But so psychodrama might be, we're in a group, let's say there's 20 people and somebody's dealing with the loss of let's say their dad. And we can talk about the loss of one's dad. But the group leader, I'm remembering this one, it was Hector Prostera, he said, OK, we're going to be a funeral here. Who in this room can be your dad? And the woman who was struggling with that saw a man and in some way reminded her of a dad. And Hector said, OK, put him down like he's in a casket. And who might be your mom? Well, you remind me a little of my mom. And so we all became the funeral. And this woman, I remember it distinctly, as so though it happened this morning, we all acted our parts. She kind of told us, you're my cousin and he's kind of obnoxious. And, and then we all did it. And in the course of that, this woman shared all of the things she wanted to share with her dad and talked about his loss and talked about, and she cried and she sobbed. And then all of a sudden other people in the room started sobbing because, you know, inside all of us, there's a little bit of sadness over somebody who's left. So the idea of turning it into a of a, of a drama, like you might think improv, focused around a psychological theme, was how a lot of the groups were done then and I remember I was this young sort of reasonably fit guy and in all the groups I remember one with Dick Price there was always okay find somebody in the room who reminds you of somebody who used to be annoy you when you were growing up and I would always be picked uh-huh. and then the idea was go to that person and express it nonverbally and so every group I was in with like three guys wanted to like beat me up or something cuz I was the punk high school guy that you know they didn't get along with and so but you didn't beat somebody up, but the idea was to act it out, yeah. To and usually the acting drew your feelings in and gave people a chance to see how this all worked and the part we all played. God, I've never really talked about this. I remember one group, it was actually run by Dick Price, and one of the guys in the room says, I feel like I'm going crazy. Now, we all feel that from time to time. So... Dick suggested, rather than have that person on a hot seat in a one-on-one therapy, Dick said to the entire group, for the next hour, we're a day room in a mental institution. We're all going to be crazy. Which was a very clever and risky thing to do. And that day... One person started jibber-jabbering in the corner. Someone started masturbating. Someone started, you know, arguing. And I thought, this is too weird, man. I'm just going to sit back and take it in. So I sat back against the wall and watched this drama unfold for an hour. And then at the end, we all came in to talk about it. And a number of people said to me, man, you were really crazy. And I said, no, I was just observing you guys. And they said, yeah, that's your version of crazy. And, uh, (laughs) And so... I thought, that's an interesting thing. The idea that in every moment, in every way, to some extent, we are expressing ourselves. We are in a dance of life. Oh. And why not look at that as that versus, oh, that I'm not in this. You know, I'm, I'm just an observer. In any case, this was the early 70s. There was very much an outlaw hippie style in Big Sur. It was movies, you know, people weren't worried about having their picture taken and sent into Sean Hannity. So there were a lot of movie stars and celebs and famous people who dropped out to be dishwashers or work in the garden. And I was a lucky guy because I I remember, so I I stayed there for six months. And then I felt that I had run out of my money and I was at the end of my thing. And what was I going to do? And so I, interestingly... One of my roommates during one of the workshops was a young kid who was a student at Yale. And we, he explained to me the week he was there that he was getting credits for independent study at Yale for this week at Esalen. So I said, wow, I wonder if I could do that retroactively. So I wrote a letter to the deans at Lehigh, and I said, I've just finished a full semester at Esalen Institute. This is 1971, maybe. Seventy, seventy-one, and I'd like for that to be considered as fully accredited education. That this is the cutting edge of psychology and medicine, and um, they did, so allowed me to graduate. And uh, <laughs> and then I I couldn't stop dreaming about Esalen. I uh, I had gotten into this doctoral program, and um, I really wanted to do a doctorate on the psychology of the body, and um, I know we live in a moment in time. I watch my kids where people think you have to envision something and then it all falls into place. So I was thinking I'm going to go to Harvard or Stanford or some other wonderful graduate school because now I really feel like, you know, I've hung out with Ram Dass and John Lilly and Alan Watts and all these people. So I'm going to be a big deal. I want to be a guy, you know, a sage on the stage, kind of like they were. I wanted to be like Michael Murphy. I wanted to be like John Lilly. I wanted to be a person, Gene Houston. I wanted to be a person who wrote books, thought about things, changed the world. My heroes, even still in my life, uh, have been not necessarily corporations or big bureaucracies. I've been, you know, I'm I'm a big fan of the whole Tom Kuhn, structure of scientific revolutions idea that revolutions happen because a person or a people have their biographies intersected with history, that individuals champion things, and that they can change the world through their ideas and their fortitude and their beliefs. That's who I think I wanted to be, but I thought I wanted to be in the field of kind of mind, body, health, and medicine. Uh And so I left Big Sur, finished my undergraduate, got accepted as the youngest person to be accepted into the special doctoral program. And I was going to do my doctorate on the psychology of the body, which no one had done at that point yet. And I had two choices. I was either going to be an apprentice to Carl Rogers on Torrey Pines Road in La Jolla. I still remember his office. Or Will Schutz at Esalen. And I decided the better choice would be Carl Rogers. And then I could visit Esalen from time to time, although I, I couldn't stop dreaming about people dancing on the deck. And I honestly, I couldn't stop dreaming about the beautiful beings I had met and the the stars at night and, you know, the waterfalls. and So I showed up to meet with uh, Dr. Rogers and uh, we liked each other. And I tried to get an apartment and because I didn't have any kind of credit, I couldn't secure an apartment and I got so frustrated. I said, screw it, I'm going to drive up the road to Big Sur and see if something works out there. And I did. So if I would have gotten that apartment in <laughs> <laughs> San Diego, I might. So, you know, life, life, you know, we think you block it all down and you chart it all out. I, I don't know. So much happens by serendipity and yeah. the play of things. But yeah, so I came back to Esalen when I was 22, working on my doctorate, working with Will and practice had a four or five hour a day practice of yoga. And I started writing Body Mind. And at the same time, I was traveling around the country and the world, studying with other swamis and masters and biofeedback people trying to make some sense of this mind-body
0: thing. Before we get into the the book, uh, which has gone to 110 printings or so, uh, outrageously uh, groundbreaking work, I wanted to ask you a bit about Will Schutz's work and and, and how that fit in with how it was that you were going to apprentice with him. Uh, So first of all, that question of psychodrama. Does that have any, is that aligned at all with Schutz's encounter work? Yes. Will was, um,
1: you know, history has a way of looking back at periods and, and remembering certain things and remembering less about other things. Will, <laughs> Will was a Harvard professor, and um, he wrote this book, Joy. And like I said, it landed him on the Johnny Carson show. And, you know, all of a sudden doing trust exercises and sharing your feelings and being open and honest became sort of like public drama. And then – but Will was also a – he had vast ability to – Interconnect. So he went and trained with Ida to become a Rolfer also. So he was a psychologist who was a Rolfer. By the way, pretty good Rolfer. Did about 10 of my hours um, back in the day. He also was really captivated by the work of Wilhelm Reich. Uh, and Reich had two American students, disciples, a guy named Alexander Lowen and John Parakos, who Will Schutz was very taken by. He was absolutely captivated by Moshe Feldenkrais, because mm-hmm. Feldenkrais was quite brilliant and more of a systems guy in terms of how the brain impacted the body. And he really was taken by Fritz because he was there when Fritz was there. And he was really, he thought he could be this sort of master of the grand concerto in a room will could work 10 20 50 people simultaneously in a room i don't know how he did it he could he he, he had a he had a gift for that mm-hmm. so that's where the psychodrama came in rather than working on your thing and then when you're done we'll talk about your thing let's find a way to work them at the same
0: time there may be people who are not familiar with the, the notion or the concept of encounter groups. And I'm wondering if you could do the surface of explaining what, what that is and why it was such a big deal at, at the time. Oh, man, Sam. Uh, it's
1: like so back in the day. Um, I think that the encounter movement, which has been sort of largely put to rest or calmed down and turned into prayer circles and sort of kindness training in junior high schools. Um, in its raw moments, it was the belief that um, let's get really real. Let's get down to it. No facade, no pretense. If you're hurting, be hurting. If you're angry, be angry. If you're jealous, let's talk about it. And that there was something to be gained By being in the presence of other people's working on their business, which I'm not sure was therapeutic or entertainment now that I look back, because most therapy before then was done in the privacy of a session with a therapist in a meeting in in a therapist room somewhere. And even if you look at, you know, the traditional Freudian stuff, uh, the therapist didn't even really look at the person. The person was lying down on a couch. The therapist was sitting in another direction making notes. And the encounter idea was that we're going to turn that, let's call it therapy. We might call it education, but I think it was therapy. Uh, let's make it into a group thing. Wow, that's kind of a wild idea. And a lot of the notion for that came, by the way, from drug rehab, from Synanon. Hmm. That Synanon was, uh, and and there was a thing in England called, I think it was called Tavistock or something like that. Sensitivity, tea training or something, I don't even remember. But the idea was we can work with groups and that there's benefit in groups because we can all come together. And uh, Will had this, God, I haven't thought of Will's work for so long, Inclusion, control, and affection. That's what he said. First, in a group, people struggle with, am I in, am I out? And then, who's in control here? And then, if you can get through that, people feel a bond, a warmth, a connection that they may never feel. And so, the encounter groups were, at least as they were envisioned, and I wouldn't run them now, I wouldn't take one now. I think they're a little too rugged. We're part of this, let's break through from our middle class, uptight 1960s model of being where, you know, everybody's trying to like, you know, keep up with the Joneses and sexually restricted and not really sharing your feelings. That was a lot of what drove it, that whoever, we're not talking about your thoughts, just we'd like your thoughts, but what do you feel? And it was this most people would say, well, what is a feeling? What are we even talking about? And the idea, based in Reich's work, uh, was that you can know yourself more truly if you are in touch with your feelings. And I think that's a lot of what the encounter thing was about. But as you might imagine, for New York intellectuals, Or for Hollywood people, this was really interesting. Wow. You're going to, wait a minute, you're going to be in your office in Weehawken, New Jersey, working on a screenplay, and then you're going to fly to California and be in a room with 20 strangers, and people are going to be like getting down into their raw issues, no holds barred what they might disclose or talk about that's kind of captivating and scriptwriters and screenwriters and actors and actresses cuz that resembled what they did in their acting training you know get to feel what it's like to be a woman with alzheimer's or get to feel what it's like to be a convict and so uh, there was an attraction for people who on the one hand were trying to be liberated from the from the 1950s 60s mentality tune in turn on you know tune in turn on drop out and also this feeling was that there was a more true version of oneself under the armor, under the facade. We'd start after breakfast and usually go midnight. I mean, you'd be going at it. I'm tired. Well, then go to sleep, you know, right there in the room. You know, I got You know, It's like the, the idea. They were intense. By the way, out of that came the trainings, you know, the Est, the Lifespring, yeah. the idea was, well, let's package what that is and make it happen in a weekend with 500 people in the room, because you can have a little bit of encountering, but it's a lot more money can be exchanged and maybe even get to the same conclusion people thought in a big hotel ballroom. What was your role
0: as, as apprentice to Will?
1: I co-led his groups. I was the young kind of whippersnapper. There were several of us that were his co-leaders, and I traveled around the country with him and got to learn his ideas. I worked with him on his books as a sort of a junior editor, Mm -hmm. and I asked him a bajillion questions. I was
0: probably his pest. How many years did you work
1: with him? So over a couple of years. He was one of my graduate advisors on my my uh, doctorate, my graduate advisors were Gene Houston, who became a dear friend, a gay loose, who I work with, uh, Will Schutz my first psychology professor, after whose class I dropped out, Bill Newman, and my uh, core advisor was a gentleman named Goodwin Watson, who had been John Dewey's roommate in college. This would be 72, 73, 74? In 76. Yeah, right from 72 to 76. That's when I worked on my doctorate. And I was at Esalen from 72 to 74.
0: It's it's interesting that you... um we're speaking of this time period now because earlier in this discussion you were speaking about kind of a, a time of hope, and I was kind of putting it into a historical context. To me, just from the, the what I've read, it would be like 66, uh, 65 maybe, with the beginning of the civil rights work, 64, on to maybe 71, 72, and then the disillusionment starts to set in. But it seems like you were working in an area where still the dreams of the new paradigms and new age were continuing. I think I, I feel like I still am.
1: I um, honestly, I um, just to show you how, you know, life throws up strange tosses and turns. I was living in a little cabin at Big Sur for a while I was living in my van at Esla. Uh, you know, I was sort of a hippie guy. I rented a little cabin from a guy that was supposedly living in New Zealand. And one morning at five o'clock in the morning, I hear bang, bang, bang on my door. And it was a secure road. I don't know how anybody even got in. And who are you? He says, I'm Jan Brewer. And I said, well, what are you doing here? He says, well, I'm the landlord. I own this place. I said, well, I live here now. He says, no, but you're leaving. I said, when? He says, Now, I said I don't think so, and he takes out a gun and puts it to my head, and I said I guess I'm leaving right about now. (laughs) So (laughs) I couldn't find a place to live. I crashed on different people's living couches and various places in Big Sur. I lived in my van again for a little while, and then this friend of mine, Gene Houston, who was one of my on my graduate committee, said, "You know, I've got a friend in Berkeley." who has just written a book, Body Time. Her name is Gay Luce, which I had read about biologic rhythms and health and disease. And she wants to create a human potential curriculum, not a weekend, not a week, uh, but a year. And I think that you and Gay and her other uh, contributor, a fabulous woman, and Eugenia Drouet, I think you guys could create something great. Because at that time, I had some experience with doing a Gestalt. I, you know, I was a little bit of a yoga teacher. I was writing body mind. So, and I kind of, you know, I could do a lot of the Esalen you know, shtick. So I said, well, I'll, I'll, that sounds cool. Uh, I need a place to live. Oh, Berkeley sounds cool. And so I got to get involved with Gay Luce, who was a wonderful being. And uh, she said, you know... Dream up a year-long curriculum. I think you've got a knack for that. Like if people met every week and they had an hour or two-hour practice every day, how would you weave dream therapy with journal writing, with biofeedback, with yoga and Tai Chi and nutrition? So this is before Pritikin. This is before Andy Weil, before Dean Ornish. We didn't have any funding. So Gay said, I know this guy. Uh, I'm blanking on his name right now. He just done the Whole Earth Catalog. In any case, he'll give us $5,000, but we have to make up a name and we have to uh, write ourselves up as a not-for-profit. So we called ourselves the Holistic Health Council. Stuart Brand, that's who it was. Where did the phrase Holistic Health we come from? We made it up.
0: Really? Yeah. Did you copyright that Ken?
1: No. And uh, cause I didn't know anything about branding or copywriting. There had been a South African philosopher named Jan Smuts who had used the word hol- holistic, and we liked it. But Gay and I, we had a big argument about it because Gay thought it should be spelled H-O-L-I-S-T-I-C. And I thought it, you know, like holy. And I thought it should be W-H-O-L, like whole. Gay was smarter and tougher than me. And so it stuck. It's holistic. And then I watched the whole holistic health movement kind of come up out of that living room. And, but Gay's mom was not well. She had an elderly mom. And Gay tried doing meditation, deep breathing and feedback and biofeedback with her. And she started feeling better. So Gay said to me, I just moved up from Big Sur. Let's do this human potential curriculum, but let's just do it with old people. And I thought, what? <laughs> Honestly, I was like 24, 25. You know, I was like, I've been living in Big Sur, living that kind of the hippie life. You want me to spend all of the rest of my year with old people? And I had a nice relationship with my grandparents. I wasn't adverse to old people, but I never like dreamed that that was my thing. And, um, I said, I'll tell you what, I'll create the program with you. I'll stay for three months and I'm going to move on. But what happened was, um, I found myself absolutely captivated by these older people. You know, I had been searching for gurus and teachers and I never went so far as to get like an Indian name or a you know, but, um, you know, I was, see and then I'd be in the room with these wrinkled up old people who really, some of them were like amazing. You know, they had a view, 90 year olds got a view on life. I'll tell you what, it's, if you can imagine what life looks like to a 90 year old, to an 80 year old, that's lost loved ones or to someone who's lived through a Nazi regime, or, and I began to realize, whoa, wait a minute, these, Oh, people are like, amazing. Not only that, but man, did they love the human potential stuff. Oh, man, you know, to be walking in on a walker and finding that through Tai Chi, you get your balance back, some of them, and and I thought... You know, and then, you know, I, I was on, I did some body work when I was at Esalen and people would say, oh, you're pretty good, but not as good as, you know, this person and that person. But man, you take a person who's hadn't had their feet rubbed for 40 years and shut and they cry and they tell you it was the most beautiful thing that's happened that year. I began to think, holy moly, all of those, frankly, human potential people are a little self-indulgent brats. And these old people were like amazing I guess I found my calling. I so we began by being the first preventative health, holistic health program in the world for the elderly. And it was used as sort of a model of, you think you're interested in Tai Chi or meditation or yoga? Forget about those young, good-looking 40-year-olds. Look at these 70-year-olds. Look what Tai Chi has done for them. Look at how yoga has made them flexible. Look at their breathing. Look at how they sleep at night. And then the people in our program started writing books of poems, and they were falling in love, and they were... And so... I began to realize that my interest was not just in the elderly, but in the aging process, which is different. Mm-hmm. Yes, older people age, but young people do too. And so I began to get unhinged from just elderly as the years unfolded. And I, and I wrote a number of more books during those years to aging. By 1982, I had written a couple, three, four books by then. And our project was pretty famous. And, um, I've been speaking in all over the world about these topics and I was this young guy and I had great mentors, Bob Butler, founder of the National Institutes on Aging, Maggie Kuhn, the head of the Great Panthers, were like my friends and mentors. And I got asked to be on an advisory panel for two years in Washington for the Office of Technology Assessment. And that used to be the think tank that served Congress. And we spent two years, we fly back and forth every month or so studying how America in the 21st century would be transformed as a result of the aging of the population. I had never thought about that. I'd been in the field almost a decade. Gerontology was near and dear to me. I thought about aging as being having to do with the elderly or the, the decisions and choices and outcomes of our lives. But when I got involved with the project in Washington, I realized that, oh, my God, longevity is rising. Birth rates are flattening. So the seesaw of young versus old is about to switch, not just here, but around the world. And my own generation, the boomer generation, who was the youth generation, come around the bend in the 21st century, would start becoming the elders. And I realized that I was seeing something that very few people had ever seen, which is what was coming was the utter and total transformation of civilization based on a longevity-based What is it like to live 90 years? What is it like to have to reinvent yourself at 50? What are the products that 60-year-olds are going to buy and eat and wear and drive? I'd have to say that a lot of what makes my approach to aging different is my human potential Mm. roots. That I still look at who could we be? What's possible? Can we look at this phenomenon in a hopeful way? Because so many people look at global aging as, oh, my goodness, what a terrible thing. Can we identify the problems and get real with them and fix them? And can we dream up a better version of ourselves? So the, the irony of it is I'm at this stage of my life. I realize that um, although I've been in the gerontology ecosystem for 45 years, my
0: attraction to Esalen is a key part of who I am. I'm just curious about what it was like to take on the project of writing a book as, as a young man and what the process, like how long did it take you to write Body Mind? I
1: hate to say it because my kids make fun of me, but I think I was in a human potential state of mind. I never published or written anything in my life, but I believe that I could. One of the things that I think has served me over my life is that I've been comfortable asking for help. So... When I was 23 like that and starting to craft this material, I thought, and and by the way, what I was trying to do with body-mind was not just put out my own theories. I was trying to integrate uh, Reich, Gestalt, uh, and particularly the the whole Kundalini notion of the chakras, and that had not quite been done before. So it was gathering and integrating and then trying to make it into something readable I sought out teachers, you know, gay, lucid written books. I said, how do you write a book? S- simple question. I think actually, Sam, you and I maybe even had that discussion a few weeks ago or something. We are talking about my son, Zach, just written a book yeah. and did I help him with that? Well, he did ask me, how does one make a book? You know, if you were to build a house, you'd ask somebody who built a house, how do you build a house? Most people think you write a book by smoking a pipe and sitting behind your fireplace and somehow a book comes out of you because I yeah. saw that in a movie. No, I mean, there's a there's a process to writing a book. And so I sought people out. I was younger than most of the people I interacted with. So I had elders in the Sage Project who had written books. I had, you know, I knew all the famous Esalen psychologists, you know, I did a book with Tim Leary and Ram Dass and Jonas Salk at one point in my life. Um, so, uh, but I had met a lot of those people early on, and I would ask people, how can I make this into a book? How do you
0: do that? And they sort of explained it. And you know what? It wasn't that crazy. Were they charmed by this notion of a, a younger guy being so uh, dead set on on creating something for himself? Well, I, I guess you'd have to ask them if they were charmed.
1: Did I try to charm them? Uh, probably. I think, they, I think they liked my enthusiasm and i wasn't going at it for the money i was i think they liked that i was trying to make something of myself and to break new ground for the benefit of others and i and i think that I, even in all the asian work over these decades i have found that if i you reach out to people at the very very highest levels if they feel your genuine interest and your desire and you do your homework so you're not wasting people's time
0: people want to help yeah what was it like when your book finally came out? Can you bombed. Remember? It bombed. Yeah. But was it? it uh, I mean, it bombed
1: were, at first. It's weird, you know. I've done sixteen books now, and 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 every book, you know, some books bomb and they stay dead. Um, what happened with Body Mind was, is that first of all, I did it. <laughs> you know, I got it done. Is, is this nineteen seventy seven? Came out in nineteen seventy seven. You know, I finished it up in 76, rewrote it for a while, cleaned it up, had good editors. We got artists. We did the drawings. And then I remember I was living in Berkeley and there was a bookstore there. This was, you may not be aware, there used to be things called bookstores. And they were like holy places, you know. And Cody's in Berkeley was a holy bookstore. And they had a little, I have the picture here somewhere. I know I saw it on my desk in the last couple of years. that They had a little marquee and I was at, I was, there was a conference at Cal and I'm walking on Telegraph Avenue and on the marquee, it said, we have Dykewald's body mind. And I thought, oh man. <laughs> and then the next time I came to Esalen, it was in the bookstore at Esalen. And I thought, oh man, you know, like, I don't know that it gets any better than that. And, um, but then the book didn't sell. And, uh, I thought, well, that's kind of weird. Um, disappointing and frustrating. My first year royalty, I, I actually still have the check in my office. I have a frame was $1, but two weird things happen. One is about a year later, I get a letter. I remember the person, Jesper Yule, J-E-S-P-E-R-J-U-U-L. My name is Jesper Yule. I run the growth center, Scovely in Denmark modeled after Esalen and now that your book Cropet Vitsed is the number one bestseller in Denmark would you be willing to come over and lead workshops and I thought is this like a joke do I have one of my stoner friends from the 70s you know writing me some goofball letter and you know there was no internet then so I started calling around and I found out that my book had been translated into lots of other languages and for some reason which I've since come to make sense of it was roaring success in Denmark and then it became a pretty good success in Brazil and it did pretty well in Mexico and France and Spain and Germany and Norway. And, and, and ultimately, in a crazy way, it started catching on in the United States. It took years. And I'm even going to say that Body Mind may have sold more copies last year than it did in the first year's. That's forty years later. So that particular book, which I don't relate to so much anymore, because I've been writing all these books about aging and longevity and 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 things like that, it sort of bombed. But then it found its own life and came alive in its own way. I still get letters from people. Oh, I just read your book. Are you still doing body work? It's like, I haven't haven't done body work for 45 years. Um, And, you know, it it touches me because I feel like what a nice thing to be able to create something, put it out in the world and then have it um, be alive. When did you meet Maddie? I was very single uh, until I was 31 and met Maddie. We got married when I was 33. So from the late sixties all the way through that wild and crazy era, I was very much not a married guy. And, um, and living in Berkeley at that Living America. in Berkeley. I lived in a little house behind a Chinese restaurant.
0: <laughs> What'd you think of Berkeley then?
1: Berkeley was cool. You know, the Bay area was about, um, there were a lot of sympathetic souls, you know, wasn't so much about trendy restaurants or high-tech skyscrapers. I respect that. But back then, Berkeley was fun. I mean, it was fun. There were people were interesting and colorful, and it was a little bit like before Burning Man, there was Berkeley, you know? When I got involved with the SAGE project, you know, I've never pieced this together before, so I'm thinking as I'm going, I would ask these old people, as you look back over your life, what's the biggest mistake you think you made? or what's the, what can you tell me about a life that I can carry forward? <laughs> I would ask, you know, I've always been a question asking guy. And I will tell you that the people who hadn't had kids told me that that was the single gravest loss they felt in their life, that somehow whether it was biologic that their seed was going to stop or, Or that as they looked around and they saw the people who were being attended to by their kids or just what... So when I was in my 20s, I felt like I was being exposed to old people who had the answers to the questions before I knew what the questions were. Mm -hmm. And so honestly, from the elder impact on me, I thought I wanted to be sure that I had a family, whether that's biologically or if we had to adopt that I felt that that was a big piece of the dance of life that I didn't want to not have. And I've been really lucky. I got two cool kids. But I will tell you that if you were to ask my kids, I guess it's a little bit of the excellent thing. We'd have a family meeting every Sunday night. Mm-hmm. And from when they were like three, you know, or, and so we'd get together and each of us, we would switch who would run it. And we'd all talk about how we were doing and is mommy traveling this week? Am I traveling? Do you have a test? Do you have, you know, how's your, you're trying out for a team? Uh, how are we doing with each other? Okay. And every Sunday, the kids are like, oh, do we have to do this again? Or, you know, and then sometimes they'd like it, but we did it. We still do it. We try to do it, uh, you know, on FaceTime now and long distance. But my kids will say that we somehow always had a connection to each other and were able to be real with what was really going on because we took the time each week to check in and to pay attention. Mm -hmm. I'll also tell you for anybody who's out there who's got young kids that when my kids were 10 and 13, I said that I've read enough about adolescence and how tumultuous it can be. I want to be wise about that. So I decided I was going to take a vacation with each of my kids one-on-one each year, separate from family, separate from Maddie and I going away together. So, and Maddie started doing it too. So I started uh, going away with And the idea was we're going to go someplace for five, six, seven days that you want to do. So Zach was 10. He says, i like to go on a rafting camping trip. So we did the Grand Canyon. Next year we did the the salmon and the snake, and then, you know, up in Oregon. And that became, and a few years ago, Zach and I were off in one of our things. And I said, Zach, this is a weird question. And my son is a very thoughtful guy, a very extraordinary character. Uh, I said to him, Zach, if I were to knock off tomorrow, you know, and be done, be gone, what are the 10 moments that we've had together that you would remember as the best? And eight of them were on these trips. Oh, wow. So I thought... Wow. I'm glad I did them. You know, my wife and I get remarried every year. The night we got married, I was 33. She was 33. It was 1983. I said, well, you we just got married in our home. We had a little wedding with about 15 people, our parents and grandparents, a couple of friends. I said, wow, this was fun. We ought to do this every year. And my wife looked at me and says, what are you talking about? I said, I don't know. It's why Why be regular? Why be ordinary let's get married every year and I says and let's make it interesting we got married on Thanksgiving let's get married every year with a different in a different place with a different religion which we have we've now had 36 weddings you know everywhere from Hopi in Sedona Arizona to the top of the Chichen Itza period a a pyramid we've got married uh, the church of spilt blood in Russia and the chapel of love in Las Vegas we got married by a dolphin in Polynesia our kids have married us three times um in different places, and um, I don't know. It's some of those rituals. It's the ritual of taking the time with each other. It's the ritual of remarrying my wife, and I think it's caused our family to be a little more appreciative of the
0: the closeness we have with each other. Are there new vows every time that, that you marry? Well,
1: every person doing a ceremony has got their own r- shtick. So, you know, you're in front of the Buddhist guy, and they're giving you the Buddhist thing. Yeah. Then you get married in front of a Navajo chief, which we did. And it's a different view. It's about the earth. It's about the water. And he had his children and grandchildren with him. And we got married. I remember once we got married by our kids. My wife and I were having a rough year. And our kids took advantage of the time to talk about our vows in terms of very precise changes they felt that each of us needed to make in our personal behaviors. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that was interesting. I mean, no kidding. By the way, is that, that to me is Esalen-like. Yeah. It's not having to be in Big Sur and chanting in the lodge, it but it is Esalen-like. And so uh, I would have to say that every year our vows and our ceremonies have had a different message to them, and it's been because of the package that whoever's doing the ceremony believes to be important.
0: Wow, that's remarkable. I, have you ever met anybody else who's has
1: done that? No, but we have some friends that are that are doing it like every tenth or every fifth or yeah. and then people say to me, "Well, why how come you do that?" And I always say the same thing It's like, "Well, how come you don't?" And now I'm going to get just a tiny little bit like full of shit here for a second, maybe even more than I've been. or really? when I was young, I really thought the things that mattered most in life were the nouns. And then I got into this like Zenny period for a couple of decades where I thought it was the verbs. You know, it's like the being. It's not the thing. It's not the car. It's not the house. It's the being. And then, I I don't know, maybe in my 50s, I began to think that what really mattered in life were the adverbs, the way you were being. But I got to tell you now that I'm a little bit older, I think it's the punctuation points. I really think the most powerful part of any speech any sense, any relationship are the punctuation points. So taking the time each year to face my wife and tell her I love her and I'm committed to being with her and have her saying the same to me, it's a big deal. I don't know. I'm not a relationship expert. Uh, I know it's hard. And, you know, Margaret Mead, who at one point was married to Gregory Bateson, one of the excellent teachers, you know, Margaret Mead at the end of her life said, I've been married three times, all successful. And, uh, you know, so I, I don't know that for everyone, they pick a mate when they're 20 or 30 and it's the mate they ought to have when they're 70. It could be different needs at different times. So I'm not going to, I, like I respect that. But for me, um, I think it's really easy to let life it's like having a path and having all the vines grow over it life is so busy and so frenetic and with social media and with traveling and with stuff and uh, it's it's just really it's easy to get lost it's easy to forget you got a son or a daughter it's easy to forget you have a wife it's easy to forget who you are I mean honestly I, I come back to Esalen now once a year uh you know, now that they have these things called personal retreats, but for for about 20 years now, I come once a year for five days just to try to remember who I am. And it's such a non-hostile environment. And the food is so yummy from the garden. And the people are always so fun to talk to. And the stars are blazing at night that doesn't always work. But it's sort of like my sanctuary, sort of like my reboot, that showing myself the regard to know that, I can lose myself in this life. You know, forget about losing your relationship to your person you chose to love and be with. You can lose your relationship to yourself easy. I don't know. I also just feel really lucky. I I look at my wife and I look at my kids and they keep kind of, you know, this is a really crazy, difficult time, I think, to be a young person, Um, as crazy as it was in my era, we were never this age. We were never 25. You know, when you and I were 25, so it was a different world. There was different technology, different images of leadership, different mechanisms for truth-telling or not. Different. You know, there wasn't FOMO like there is now, you know. Yeah. I, I, so trying to be a dad is hard, you know. And I think I fail at it a lot of the time, but I think my kids see that I'm trying hard. Mm-hmm. I think they appreciate it. Michael said to me a few years ago, we were at one of the uh, uh, sessions and Michael said, you know, I, I, and I'm not like this kind of guy with everything. I don't give a lot of money to my university or you know, the local temple or church. I mean, I, I'm i pretty selective. And I'll, the only other thing I have this kind of relationship with is the X Prize Foundation, which I'll mention in a moment. But Michael said something about generosity, you know, people like Ken, very generous. And I said, you know, I really don't think about it as generosity. I think about it as reciprocity. Mm-hmm. I think about the times that I've showed at Esalen. When my dad died and I showed up at Esalen, I was, I was broken in pieces, you know. But I came out of that week, I felt like, all right, I'm going to be able to handle this, you know. And this happened with my kids. Or that happened, uh, there was a time where my business I told you the good story. stories. Time when my business totally failed is my fiftieth year of life, and everything crapped out. I rolled down that driveway at Esalen and thought, "Oh, I don't think I can make it from here," you know. And um, so I feel like, like thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people, I've Esalen has given me so much. Mm-hmm. Now we're talking about. The great sanctuary of this planet, you know. This yeah. is a vortex of beauty. Yeah. I I've been very fortunate. Got a good life. I've had my dings, but I'm still standing. I think I've made an impact in the world. I love my wife. I found love, and I got a family. I got a lot to be grateful for, and Esalen has a big piece of that.
0: Talk to me about uh, X Prize Foundation and your work uh, combating. Alzheimer's.
1: Yeah. So there's a guy named Peter Diamandis. Peter's in his late fifties. He's a Greek American. He's handsome, short, dapper, uh, brilliant, undergraduate in MIT, I think in molecular biology, doctorate at MIT in astrophysics while getting his medical degree at Harvard. Um, And Peter. You know, I've been captivated by people who can change the world. And Peter is such a person. Um, He believes that grand challenges in the world are best solved through the crowd. Through incentive competitions. Mm -hmm. So one might feel that best way to solve a problem is by meditating for 50 years. Peter's a different kind of guy. So he talks about Lindbergh, for example, when Lindbergh flew across the ocean, it wasn't just because he had a whim. It was because there was a contest and an award. And when he did it, all of a sudden flight became more commonplace. It got a lot of media attention and people everywhere started thinking about getting on planes. So the idea of if you look at history, there have been times where there have been grand challenges that somebody has had the wherewithal to set it up as game. You know, this word gamification. Turn it into a game. Let's play. Peter also believes, notwithstanding the fact that he's been in the great institutions of the modern era, that, um, that often the greatest problem solvers are not necessarily the people at the university or at the corporation or were voted into office. So if one can capture a grand challenge... Drinkable water, reusable energy, um, security, education for kids in sub Saharan Africa, whatever we think the grand challenges are, let's create a prize. And let's tell the whole world that we have a competition going on. And I don't care if you're a grandmother in Nairobi, I don't care if you're a group of high school students in Brazil, I don't care if you're the professor at Stanford and you got a few hours in the middle of the night where you're thinking about things. Anybody can compete and let's solve these problems. So I approached Peter five and a half years ago because I like his technique because I can't be a futuristic kind of guy and look at the future of aging without being a hundred percent clear because it's quite obvious that we're about to be taken down by pandemic of Alzheimer's that will be unlike anything the world has ever encountered. That the... If we live short lives, we don't have to worry about the diseases of the aging brain. But here's one of the ironies of if you're going to live 80, 90, 120 years, the Alzheimer's rate for people over 85 is 1 in 3, and over 90, it's 1 in 2. And that's, you know, I knew Ronald Reagan. He certainly had good medical care, and he had a lively life, but he was taken down. Margaret Thatcher was taken down. You know, there's so many people been taken down, and we are going to be. That's what happens when you have a long-lived society, and you've got a disease that correlates to and preys on the aging mind. And so I've watched this now. I spoke at the 1995 White House Conference on Aging. I had a great slot. I was between Gore and Clinton. And um, I said, look, we can either take resources we have now and give people more benefits and entitlements. I can respect that. But on the other hand, unless we take the money to build a new model of science so that we can create healthy, long-lived people, we're screwed. And I've watched for decades is how the amount of funding for Alzheimer's and related dementias is poultry. And I've watched for decades how the best and brightest young students want to go into video games. They don't want to go into the neurosciences. And I've watched for decades how people don't want to even talk about Alzheimer's because it's scary. It's horrible. It's, it's a, it's, 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 it's a nightmarish disease. So Peter and I challenged Peter five and a half years ago. Why don't we create an Alzheimer's to crowdsource a solution to Alzheimer's disease? And, um, X Prize Foundation, based in Southern California but branched out all over the world, there was a competition. There were five grand challenges: uh, democracy, clean air, clean water, healthy mining, um, Alzheimer's disease, and we had to compete to see who would win to be the next launch prize. And this few months ago we actually took first place and the same night I raised 25 million dollars to fund the prize and so there's no money for me in that in fact I've been a bunch of us have been paying supporting the thing for for half a decade but uh that feels to me to be a worthy use of my life um and I'm going to end with a comment about that um to tie a number of pieces together um Even though I took a lot of workshops and I'm a psychotherapist by training and I believe in looking after yourself, I'm a really big believer that you gotta be doing things for other people or else, honestly, you know, you're just, it's just another version of self indulgence. Maybe that's rude of me. When I was in Denmark those early years, I was a kid. And because my book was popular, Krope Vietsted, which means body-mind, um, I got invited to lunch with a woman named Esther Mueller, who was in her late 80s, who was the leading physician in Denmark, who was also a geriatrician. And uh, I, I never had, now I've had lots of lunches with interesting people but I didn't know what to do so you know I'm worried about using the right fork and and we're having this lunch and then midway into it she says to me so you're an interesting young man how will you use your life and I thought maybe we had a translation issue I said well, what do you mean so you know how will you use your life Ken and I see "Mean, what am I going to do to make money no how will you use your life I said oh you mean what's my career going to be said, no She says, someday you'll understand my question. So I look around and I think, oh, I could do real estate developing or I could do this or I could do that or I could make some money or something or I could help put an end to Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know that I'm going to be successful. I worry that I'm not because it's hard. This is a very hard disease. But for me, it's a worthy thing to use my life for. So I balance. I have a certain amount of time with my wife, my kids, and my company and my clients. But then I've got about half of my life that I focus on not-for-profits and giving stuff. And uh, and that my two most cherished things are Eslin and the X Prize.
0: How can people find out more about the the
1: X Prize? X dot org. Uh, f- fabulous website. Alzheimer stuff is all over it. Um, you get to see the speech I gave at the closing night of the conference uh, last fall that worked people want to be a part of something hopeful I think that's was true in the 60s it's true now and I think that those of us who maybe are able or have the courage or maybe the good fortune to focus on doing good boy need to do it more than ever
0: Ken Dykdwald, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you, my friend.
1: Thanks for asking me all these questions. I don't ever get to do this, actually. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Geraldine Hess, Lori Putnam, Shannon Hudson, and Ian Golden. Our music is by Nico Holloman. If you'd like to hear more episodes, please find us on iTunes. And if you like what you're hearing, take a second to rate us and write a review. You can also find all of our episodes at esalen.org. That's E-S-A-L-E-N.org. Until next time, be well.